Womanhood is a podcast created to give voice to all women's experiences, which are typically stigmatized or silenced in society. I'm your host, Mimi Healy. Welcome to Womanhood Podcast. Today, I'm so excited to introduce our guest, Valerie M. Hudson. She is a university distinguished professor of political science in the Department of International Affairs at the Bush School of Government and Public Service at Texas A&M University, where she directs the program on women, peace, and security. She is the author of multiple books, including Bear Branches, Sex and World Peace, The Hillary Doctrine, And her most recent book is called The First Political Order, How Sex Shapes Governance and National Security Worldwide. She's co-authored multiple other books and articles, which you can find online through just a quick Google search. She is an expert on international security and foreign policy analysis, as well as gender and security. She is also a principal investigator of the Women's Stats Database, which has the most comprehensive compilation of information on the status of women in the world. It's truly an amazing comprehensive database, which you can find um, for free through womensstats.org. Uh, coders comb the literature and conduct expert interviews to find qualitative and quantitative information on over 300 indicators of women's status in 174 countries with populations of at least 200,000. In 2009, the magazine Foreign Policy named Valerie Hudson as one of the top 100 most influential global thinkers. In 2020, just last year, Emma Watson chose Sex and World Peace, which is co-authored by Valerie, as her book for International Women's Day and had a really fascinating interview with Dr. Hudson, which can be found online or through Emma Watson's Instagram. Dr. Hudson is an absolutely brilliant woman, and I'm so honored to share her words and research and wisdom with you today. So without further ado, the amazing, incredible, fascinating, and quite brilliant Dr. Valerie M. Hudson. My name is Valerie Hudson, and I am in the Department of International Affairs at the Bush School of Government and Public Service at Texas A&M University, and I direct the program on women, peace, and security there. And um, my career's work has really been bifurcated into two subfields. One is foreign policy analysis, which is the study of foreign policy decision-making. But the second, which is what uh, we're here to talk about today, is I've looked at the relationship between the security of women and the security of states. Uh, I think we we all know that when um, 
states are insecure, such as in a state of war, uh, women's security is diminished. But there are very few people who are looking at the um, linkage in the opposite direction. That is when you decrease the security of women in a society, um, do you also decrease uh, national security? And so my various research projects and books and other publications have all centered around that theme. Awesome. Um, your work is so fascinating. I'm actually interested, did you begin in the foreign policy and international relations field and then kind of realize that this was a gap? Uh, how did that come about? Like, did A equal B or were you interested in all of it from the beginning? No, I was not interested in the least in gender or women when I was first doing my doctoral work. Um, my, my doctoral work was um, in the, um, in the um, early 80s. Um, we were still in the Cold War at that time period. And mm -hmm. um, I was at Ohio State University getting my doctorate and I don't remember having any female professors. Um, I don't mm -hmm. remember there being mentioned hardly any women in class, maybe Margaret Thatcher, um, but that was a, pretty much about it. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I think all of us at the time pretty much thought of that as, as unremarkable, as simply the way things were, perhaps even naturally the way things were. But I think I went through a process of kind of radicalization um, over the next several years, where through experiences both in my academic life as well as in my um, non-academic life, uh, I began to realize that that was uh, a foolish way of looking at national security, that the, the masculinist approach to security was deficient in a number of ways. Uh, it was deficient in that you could not see um, linkages that you could not imagine. Uh, and it was also deficient in the way that we approach security dilemmas, uh, approaching them only as men do, um, I think is again, um, not a comprehensive view of the ways in which we could look at security dilemmas. So it was a process of awakening, I think for me as well. And so, yeah, by the early nineties, um, I was beginning to think as a researcher about looking at this link between the security of women and the security of nation states. Wow, that's fascinating and just so kind of shocking to hear that, you know, many women weren't mentioned and there weren't very many female professors and everything. And now to where you've come, I mean, it's, it's amazing. So generally looking at the relationship between the security of women and the security of states, what would you say are the most threatening factors to women's security worldwide? That's an interesting way of framing the question. Um, that is, uh, I think that, you know, obviously the underlying threat to women is that the interests of women and the interests of men are not completely overlapping. Um, we all have interests in common, but I think we also have uh, interests that are, are separate as well. And so for, for men, this is very threatening. Um, I, again, here we're talking at really 
subterranean basement levels of understanding the threats against women. And so um, men find this threatening because men have no future without women. Um, nothing that man has created will um, live past his lifetime unless it lives on in the next generation of human beings. But there is no next generation of human beings um, without women. Uh, and so men seek to control women. Uh, and uh, in, in seeking for that control that often elides into domination and coercion, uh, which is justified, I think, by suggesting that the difference between men and women, the biological differences between men and women, are a natural justification for women's oppression and subordination to men. Mm -hmm. uh, and so if that's sort of the subterranean level, then I think the next level up is to see the kinds of mechanisms that are used uh, to ensure that women are controlled. And that ranges from uh, more direct means of control, such as beatings and domestic violence and femicide, uh, to things that one might consider to be more systematized. So um, things such as um, patrilocal marriage, where uh, brides have to move to their husband's compound, uh, bride price or dowry, uh, polygyny, um, lack of divorce rights for women, lack of custody rights for women, lack of property rights for women. Um, these sorts of cultural norms, cultural laws, cultural customs, uh, are designed to keep women subordinate uh, to men. Um, and, and then I think when women begin to break free of those, we see a, sort of an outsized backlash uh, against that. Uh, and, and so uh, I, I think the, the sources of threats are, are clearly in the male desire to control women um, but if we're talking about it more proximately, we're talking about uh, how control is contested between men and women mm -hmm. and what direct and systematized means are, are used and how women fight back and then what the backlash is against that fighting back. Yeah, and so how does this uh, control of women affect the security of nation states? Oh, now this is the fun part because of course, you know, men think that by controlling women, they'll be safe, mm. right? That they'll be safer than they would be if they did not control women. But it turns out that that's not the case at all. Um, we posit um, three particular pathways through which this, the insecurity of women um, creates insecurity in the nation state. So the first pathway is that of um, boot camp. That is that um, the training ground for authoritarianism, the training ground for political violence is observed domestic terror, observed domestic uh, autocracy within the household. So as new human beings are brought into the society and are socialized within households uh, in which it is not only natural and unremarkable, but even very advantageous to use um, dominance and coercion against females, 
then you are spreading within that society the idea uh, that autocracy and violence uh, are functional uh, and are customary uh, and may even be obligatory. So, and in our new book, we, we show the strong relationship between um, violence against women and levels of autocracy and political violence within the society. I think the second pathway is that the more systematized forms of control of females um, also uh, create, if you will, a structural goads that um, push the nation state into instability in a chronic fashion. Um, the easiest way to see those is, is by looking at um, customs that obstruct marriage markets as to wit prevalent polygyny, inflationary bride price, as well as sex ratio alteration. It turns out that these uh, mechanisms, which are designed ostensibly to control women, uh, also destabilize the entire society uh, because it obstructs the marriage market for young men and leaves these young men with permanent grievances, which can only be redressed through political violence. Uh, so, for example, we've looked at the relationship between inflationary bride price on the one hand uh, and um, male propensity to engage in terrorism on the other. Uh, and there's a strong association uh, with young men, um, disenfranchised young men, marginalized young men, priced out of the marriage market entirely and with rebel and terror groups offering to overcome that obstruction if these men are willing to fight with them. And then lastly, we think the third uh, causeway is that um, societies that disempower women are also disempowering the very agents whose gendered roles uh, put them in charge of things such as the health of the society, the environment uh, of the nation state, the demography of the nation state. And so when you actually disempower those who are the caretakers of such things, um, one isn't surprised to discover, for example, that societies that treat women the worst also have the worst health, the worst environmental preservation, the worst demographic insecurity levels. Um, so we think that these are the, the major three causal pathways that link the security of women with the security of nation states. I want to ask kind of despite all of the evidence and data that you and um, your research has produced around gender-based violence and uh, what you just laid out, it still exists and is prevalent in so many societies. Um, why do you think this is, despite there being so much knowledge of it? Well, I, I, you know, I'd almost turn it around and say, why would we expect that it would uh, fundamentally change? I mean, um, uh, even within our own society, males hold the preponderance of economic and political power. Uh, mm -hmm. And the subordination of women is... Um, is, is, is part of the foundation for that power. Um, for example, capitalism is completely parasitic on the unpaid caregiving labor of, of women. 
uh, if women were paid for their uh, caregiving, capitalism would be impossible. Uh, there would be no way to generate um, surplus capital um, because it would all have been used to, to pay those who do the caregiving work in the society. So, you know, for me, the, the, the bigger question is, is not why, um, you know, it's, it's so difficult to change. I mean, I think it's, it's clear there's huge vested male interest in this type of system, but rather how has it been possible for there to be even, um, you know, some advancement? Uh, and I think that's where, um, you know, a broad historical view of human society comes into play. Um, and, and for example, in our latest book, we have a chapter that's devoted to looking at how Northwestern Europe, you know, broke free from um, uh, patrimonialism, uh, patrilineality, um, and, and, and so forth and move towards democracy and uh, capitalism earlier than any of the rest of the world's societies. And, um, you know, our argument is that uh, men unintentionally altered the systems of control of women. Um, so for example, the Catholic church um, which was of course completely dominated by um, men and male interests, um, propped up women's uh, rights to inheritance as widows um, because um, widows were um, willing to give money to the church in exchange for protection from their husbands, their dead husbands, relatives. So we begin to see women having real property rights in Europe as a result. The Catholic Church also banned polygyny. Uh, it banned inheritance by illegitimate children. Uh, it banned uh, female infanticide, indeed all infanticide. Uh, so it began to uh, um, undercut male control over women. And, but men did this in their own interests. The Catholic fathers were certainly not interested in the emancipation of women by any means. <laughs> Um, it was also true that um, another huge difference um, that occurred in Northwestern Europe occurred with reference to the age of marriage of young women. Um, so throughout human history, the marriage of, uh, pattern has been to marry a pubescent girl off to a man who was 10 or more years older than she so that every marriage within those societies was the marriage of a definitely junior and inferior partner to an older, wiser, powerful partner. Um, but um, one of the legacies of late Roman law in Northwestern Europe was to uh, change the taxation of land so that your tax would be lower if there were more people living in your household. And so uh, unlike the, the norm at the time, which was you wanted to get rid of your girls at puberty, marry them off so that they weren't a burden on your household. All of a sudden, those daughters became crucial in household strategies to hold on to land and keep taxes low. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we begin to see the age of marriage for girls begin to creep up from 13 and 14, which is what it was worldwide 
to 22, 23, um, 20, 20, 23. Um, and um, being married to men of just slightly older ages, 24, 25. In those kinds of marriages, it is not necessarily hierarchical with a clear superior and a clear inferior. In those kinds of marriages, they're more uh, equitable, they're more companionate. The woman has, is a mature woman who has perhaps had experience, um, maybe you know, even working. Uh, and she enters the, the marriage with her own assets and she wishes to retain her own assets. So you begin to see this huge revolution in Northwestern Europe uh, and it comes about um, because of men, um, the Catholic fathers, uh, the Roman legislators and the, their successor taxmen uh, you know, who took over from them. Uh, they altered the system and they broke the backs of male control over women in so doing. But again, it's not because they were in favor of women's emancipation. They were looking out for their own short-term interests. But in doing so, they created an utter revolution in Northwestern Europe that laid the ground for phenomena such as the arise of democracy and the arise of entrepreneurship and the arise of capitalism. Mm. Wow, that's fascinating. And it kind of makes me wonder, uh, is there a modern example of this happening? Oh, well, well sure, of course. Um, you know, in much of the world still today, the real governing power in the society is extended male bonded kin networks. I mean, if you look at um, obvious places like Somalia or Afghanistan, it's all clan-based. It's male extended kin networks. And, and women are fiercely subordinated in those cultures as a, as a result. And laws for women are deeply inequitable when compared with um, laws for men. Um, so there's a lot of societies where it's still almost the way it was a thousand years ago in terms of your life as a woman. You know, there are other countries that have made some transitions, um, but certainly have not, you know, moved in the direction of, say, a Norway or a Sweden. Um, one of the interesting things about China is it's still a bride price society. All right. If you want to contract a marriage in China, you know, the, the man and his family are going to have to pay a bride price. Uh, and of course, China, again, being a modern 21st century communist nation, not only has the ancient tradition of bride price, it also has the ancient tradition of female infanticide uh, and its modern variant, female sex selective abortion. Um, so I, I think we, you know, the, the, the countries that, that we think of as perhaps normal, such as, you know, European countries are actually very weird. Right, very, very weird uh, compared with the rest of the world in terms of gender relations. Yeah, hearing you talk about that, I was just thinking and wondering actually, how has the LGBTQ plus rights movement affected your work and research with looking at marriage and kinship systems? And how has the acceptance and recognition of non-binary gender and understandings of performativity and fluidity and personhood shaped some of your work? 
through breaking this heteronormative structure of thought and gender systems has disaffected your research in, in any way and how so? Yeah, well, certainly, um, you know, as women have fought um, for their status to be equal to that of men, um, that that breaks open a space for, you know, both men and women to say, you know, these classic gender norms that our society holds, these classic um, gender roles and stereotypes, um, are, are no longer necessary if men and women are more equal. And so I think in countries where um, equality between men and women has um, moved meaningfully forward, also see a more open attitude towards gender identity and sexual orientation. Mm. Okay, yeah, definitely. Um, and one question that I have as well is how do you, think having women in legislative powers, uh, sorry, legislative positions of power can help secure the well-being of women. I know just in the past year, there's been so much talk and um, observance of countries with female leaders and their COVID-19 response. Um, and now with the election of the Biden administration and seeing um, the first female vice president in the U.S. I am really curious to see or to hear how you think having women in legislative positions of power can help secure the well-being of women. Sometimes it can and sometimes it doesn't. It really depends upon the society in which, um, you know, the women find themselves. So, for example, if you look at a list of countries ranked by the proportion of women in the national legislature, Rwanda is at the top or near the very top with over half of women in the national legislature. Mm. Um, but um, the situation of women in Rwanda is not good, right? In terms mm -hmm. of property rights, in terms of marriage rights and so forth. Um, so um, I think you have to look at how powerful the legislature is or isn't in the society. And then I think the, the second thing you have to look at is who, who are the women, right? Um, so for example, um, India and Pakistan have some quotas for women, but these uh, the women who are put forward are always the wives or the daughters of um, big men. And it's actually the big men who hold the position and determine the voting uh, and, and not the women themselves. Um, so simply raising the proportion of women in parliament, I don't think is, is a panacea. Um, however, I think in societies where there is greater gender equality, you naturally begin to get, I think, a more equitable distribution of seats in the legislature between men and women. Um, but note that the United States, it's still, you know, I think it's still less than 30%. I'd have to I don't think I've done the recalculations, but That's okay. it's it's still not even anywhere near parity, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah, and, and of course, like people think of the United States as being such a progressive um, gender equity uh, focused society. So that's really fascinating. Um, so one thing that I, really loved in your book, Sex and World Peace. And um, I'm interested to hear 
how this is in the first political order, um, but you lay out concrete ways of thinking and actions that can be taken by readers. So in discussing all of this, what advice would you give to listeners to help in the empowerment and security of women? Well, we, um, we're big believers of kind of a pincer movement, right? Which is that, um, yes, we need governments to be involved in legislation and in policy um, and in budget budgeting, right? That will um, make it easier for women um, to be viewed as equals and to act as equals within the society. So we need things like the Violence Against Women Act. We need specific budget lines for gender programming. Um, you know, we need um, uh, you know, norms that the State Department will not participate in peace negotiations where there are no women at the table. I mean, we need that kind of government insistence. Mm -hmm. um, at the same time, um, we know that simply changing the law doesn't change a dang thing on the ground for women. Um, so, for example, sex-selective abortion has been illegal in India for decades, absolutely illegal. Wow. But the sex ratio in India is now the worst it's ever been since um, records have been kept. Wow. So how is that even possible, right? So clearly law by itself is not the cure. Mm -hmm. So you have to have a pincer movement. You have to match, you know, what's going on, you know, from the top down with um, initiatives uh, from the bottom up, right? Which is mm -hmm. how to have that change of heart. And I think we've seen a lot of really great um, movement in that, um, in, in that respect. And, and that's really where I keep my eye um, is uh, things like the Me Too movement, um, mm -hmm. things like the arrest of people like Harvey Weinstein and and so forth and so on, um, showing men that um, they no longer have impunity to hurt or control women uh, is really huge. Mm -hmm. uh, and then having people be um, you know, attentive to whether they take women seriously or whether they're dismissing them and that there are social penalties for dismissing women's viewpoints. I mean, this is, this is all, great work that's being um, done. I mean, I grew up, I'm of an age where I grew up where sexual harassment was just considered part of the job description. Mm. And there was no one to complain to and no one would have cared at all, right? Mm. If, if a particular female employee was harassed. Uh, but now, you know, we've gotten more serious about sexual harassment. It's not considered unremarkable. It's, it's now something to remark upon and act upon. So yes, I think we need uh, activity at the grassroots and I think we need activity at the government level. And when you have both together, that's where I think that sustainable change can occur. Mm -hmm. Definitely. It is an, like reassuring and um, uplifting and hopeful to see movements like the Me Too movement. But one last thing I'm really interested in since uh, you take a very data-driven approach and um, with the rise of social media and globalization, how do you think that will impact women in countries who might be seeing the Me Too movement? How do you think that media and globalization might be able to help 
in the empowerment of women worldwide? I think that's a very thoughtful question. I think globalization is a real double-edged sword for women. I think on the one hand, on the positive side, as you've alluded to, um, having a, a more globalized concept of gender equality, um, where uh, through media, social media, other kinds of uh, cross-cultural communication, uh, women can and men can see uh, gen more gender equal societies and how men and women treat each other, how they work together, how they live together and so forth um, and do so without a sense of, of dominance or coercion or hierarchy. That is crucially important. That is hugely positive. But I, I think you know that there, there are plenty of effects of globalization that haven't been as good for women. Mm -hmm. um, so the, the globalization of the sex trade, sex trafficking and so forth has, has been a modern plague. Um, mm -hmm. I think uh, also the, um, um, the, the globalization of labor um, and the kinds of exploitation that women workers often face at the hands of multinational uh, enterprises is, is something that is unfortunate. And of course, with every good idea that our globalized world embraces, there are also rotten ideas. So, um, you know, the, the men's rights activists and the incel movement that have found echoes um, abroad as well, I think is unfortunate. So yeah, globalization can be good for women and it can bring some negatives along with it as well. Yeah, definitely. Um, well, thank you so much. Uh, I cannot tell you how much I appreciate you speaking with me, and I'm just so honored to have you on the podcast. Thank you. It's been lovely to be here. What a great conversation we've had. You can find all of Valerie's books wherever you find your books, and please check out her new book, The First Political Order. I will be linking all of these in the show notes, and thewomenstats.org will also be there. Thanks so much for listening. forget to follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Please subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen and drop a comment telling me why you are enjoying the podcast. I'll see you in two weeks.